Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's program is Joshua Cooper, professor of mathematics at University of South Carolina. We talk about the private sector versus the academic, why proofs are important in child rearing, and just how rotorooters and liars are connected. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's program is Professor Joshua Cooper from the University of South Carolina. Hello, Professor Cooper. Hello. I guess we can just get uh, straight into this. So I just uh, want to ask a very basic question, go right back to the beginning. When do you feel uh, that you realized that mathematics is something that you were very interested in uh, pursuing as a lifetime career? I was about 15, I think. I had, uh, my, my grandfather was a, a radar engineer in the Air Force, and so, and he'd always sort of given me his old textbooks on uh, calculus and uh, various more applied topics. Um, so I'd, I'd sort of gotten interested in, in physics and engineering as a, as a child. But uh, sometime around, yeah, I guess it was when I was 15 years old, I, I, uh, I had an opportunity actually to go to a conference, um, the annual CGTC conference in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, I just happened to be in town and was bored and uh, ended up seeing Paul Erdős speaking. That sort of cemented it. Oh, what was it like to see uh, Erdős speak? Oh, it was, it was tremendous. You know, he, he was... Uh, he was a little bit hard to understand, you know, he had this thick uh, Hungarian accent. I wasn't used to the Hungarian accent yet, but he had just this, this long list of amazing problems. I, I couldn't believe the, how many different interesting problems. I just wanted to go work on all of them. Um, they really, uh, really got me excited about uh, combinatorics in particular. Uh, that seems to be something that you've kept up, because you uh, keep a list of open problems on your website as well. Do you find that you have students who come in and talk to you about those, or anyone who tries to tackle the problems that you keep on your website? Yeah, definitely. That's uh, in addition to just having it out there for people to poke through. Maybe its primary reason for existence is that it attracts students, so every once in a while somebody comes into my office and says, hey, I saw this problem on your your list on your website, and wondering if you want to talk about it. Uh, as a professor, you do some research advisement, and I was wondering what uh, what sort of process goes into when you start helping a student, be it an undergraduate or a graduate, with their research. What sort of tact uh, do you try to push them towards, or do you just let them try to push themselves in whatever direction they're trying to go? Yeah, I guess my my philosophy on it is that it it should be the energy for the endeavor should be coming from them. You know, I I want them to be working on something that they're interested in. It's hard to to do any 
mathematics unless you feel excited about it or find it interesting. So I try to leave it to the extent that it's possible up to the student that I'm working with to decide what kinds of questions they find interesting. And of course, I, I can steer them a little bit and, and say, you know, okay, that one is way too difficult. We're not going to solve that this year. Or another one, I maybe say, you know, let's get started. You can write some software and let's do some experimentation. Speaking of uh, software, you have spent some time not just in the academic community, but also in the private sector. Uh, what sort of differences do you feel that there are between working in the private sector and working in a academic world where there's not quite as much uh, direction given to you? Yeah, they're really uh, different worlds. As a, as a professor, I don't really have a boss. Of course, I'm responsible to the department and to the department chair, but ultimately I get to decide what I work on and when I work on it um, and choose my own hours and, and do the work where, where I'd like and how I'd like. And uh, my private sector experience was never never that flexible. Elements of it here or there, but yeah, there's always you know some particular project that... Uh, I'm assigned to work on, and, and more or less, I just am directed to, to do one task or another. It's, you know, it's, it's really a, a matter of my intellectual freedom. Even without that intellectual freedom, did you ever feel that in the private sector, sometimes having that direction forced upon you was a useful thing? Oh, definitely. I had uh, I had a position where I worked on some computational geometry problems, and I had not had any exposure uh, to speak of in computational geometry, and I'm not sure I would have ever looked into it if, if I hadn't uh, had that position, but it, it required me to go and learn a whole bunch about it, and it turns out I really like it. Um, it's very interesting stuff. So, yeah, definitely. it was. Uh, that's not the only instance where I encountered some interesting questions or even an entire area of mathematics that uh, otherwise I wouldn't have known about. Now, there's one specific uh, private sector position that you held that I was uh, hoping to ask you about. And that was you did some work as a consultant for the uh, Microsoft Research Theory Group. Yes. And I was specifically wondering what exactly that position entailed. What sort of consulting were you doing for them? The theory group is pretty independent. So... My experience there was similar to uh, that of a postdoc at a, at a university. I, I spend my days just chatting with the various really smart people walking around about interesting problems and attending talks. And I didn't really hear very much from corporate, per se. Every once in a while, I, I remember one time I got an email from a developer somewhere writing code, and they needed an algorithm to, if I remember correctly, was to enumerate the size K subsets of an N set. And there are standard algorithms out there. Uh, Knut's book's got, I think in the first volume, has an uh, algorithm for doing it. But I was about to reply to them, and Laszlo Lovas beat me to it. <laughs> I just remember... Uh, 
email and then getting the, the reply CC'd to me from Lovos but, uh, with this uh, standard algorithm and references as well. That's about all I heard from from the actual development side or, or you know, the kinds of things that were actually going into Microsoft products. Otherwise, it was just interacting with with the folks that were, well, they were visitors and there were uh, people that were there permanently. You are listening to Strongly Connected Components. The guest on today's episode is Professor Joshua Cooper from the University of South Carolina. Now, if you like this episode, you probably like all the old episodes in the feed of Strongly Connected Components. And, of course, you can find those in the way you typically can find old episodes of podcasts, either uh, through the RSS feed you're subscribed to, iTunes, or by going over to our website, acmescience.com, where you can find all the old episodes of Strongly Connected Components, as well as the podcast that we have that takes on the lighter side of mathematics, combinations and permutations. You can also find on Acme Science uh, our forum, where you can discuss this episode, discuss any of the old episodes, as well as just in general discuss science and mathematics. So you guys probably should go check it out. Now back to the interview. You finished your PhD in, I believe it was 03, correct? Yes. So you're, a, I mean, a rather junior uh, professor in many ways. I mean, just, uh, I mean, at least younger than probably most of the other professors at your department. Mm-hmm. And you finished your your PhD well into the uh, age of the internet, which, of course, we're going to be publishing this podcast on. And I was wondering if you felt that there might be uh, big differences in in your feelings and your approaches towards the usefulness of technology and how technology uh, can be harnessed than some of the other professors in your department. Oh, definitely. I I can't even believe the story sometimes that I hear about what happened before there was a LaTeX, the, the mathematical typesetting system, or um, or before there was email. I, it's hard to even imagine how people are able to function. My, I rely on it so much. I'm definitely more technology oriented than than a lot of my colleagues. There are plenty of my colleagues who lived through the, the period before the internet existed and, and now have really embraced it and, and really use it to its potential. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely among the, the those who um, interact with technology the most. And what way do you tip, I mean, other than email and other communication network, uh, social networking type things, uh, uh, what, in what way do you find yourself most commonly using technology? Yeah, there's a, I guess there's, there's a few ways that it comes out. I, uh, I do essentially all of my research online at this point. Um, very rarely do I actually have to physically walk down to the library, which is actually only about 30 or 40 feet from my office door. <laughs> but uh, I, I almost never go over there because I can access just about anything um, digitally. So I really do most of my research online, reading papers and hunting around for, for what's known about a, a question or you know, these kinds of activities. I also, I also give the majority of the talks that I do um, using presentation software, usually uh, PowerPoint, actually. So that, that's something that uh, I spend a lot of time with. 
Hey, I, I, was, I was going through some of your papers and presentations, speaking of research, and I came upon one whose title just uh, begged me to ask a question about it. What exactly is the rotor-rooter analysis of the liar game? <laughs> so, um, Jim Prop, who is a mathematician at UMass Lowell, had this, actually, while I was visiting Microsoft, came and gave a talk on some work that he'd been doing with an undergraduate, Lionel Levine, who um, I think now is a postdoc, on, it's a kind of funny question, so the idea is, imagine uh, you have the integer grid, um, two-dimensional integer grid, and at each location there's a, there's a, a pointer that points north, south, east, or west. And, and you start with some distribution of, of chips, of coins, say, sitting at each location. The idea is that at, at each time step, you feed all of those coins to the, the arrow that they're sitting on. The, the, the grid point has this associated arrow. And as the chips are fed, the arrow spins around, and um, it turns 90 degrees for each chip that passes through it. And it comes to a halt in some position. Meanwhile, the chips are sent in the direction that the arrow is pointing when it's actually fed to the... So this gets called the, the router. And the idea is it's sort of rotating around. So some people call it the roto-router. It's also been called the prop machine after Jim Prop. And so I showed with uh, Joel Spencer and then later uh, extended the results with Benjamin Doe and uh, Tobias Friedrich and Gabor Tardos. We showed that uh, this the distribution of chips one ends up with, uh, not just in two dimensions, but in uh, one dimension we have actually very very strong results to this effect, weaker results in higher dimensions, but still something to the effect that it imitates a random walk. So essentially, if if one let the chips wander randomly, then the expected number of chips that landed at any given location after some amount of time is very close to the actual number of chips that this rotor-router setup would put there. So somehow the, this uh, prop machine acts very much like a, a random like a random walk, even though it's completely deterministic. And my colleague, uh, Robert Ellis, who's at the Illinois Institute of Technology, noticed that deep inside of a problem that involves um, something called the Ulam liar game. So this is a, a variant on uh, 20 questions, where so 20 questions, one, one asks yes or no questions until you can whittle down the, the answer to, to one possibility. Um, in the, the liar variant of this, the person answering the questions gets to lie some bounded number of times. And the question is, how long does it take you to, to figure out what their what the what the secret is that they're that they're trying to keep from you, even accounting for these lies. So it turns out that that deep within this question, there is something that very closely resembles the rotor router machine, and it it has this random like behavior. It's actually important to the analysis that it has this random like behavior. So we started playing around with it and, and realized actually that. We could prove some things about the liar game, um, in particular about uh, 
a variant that they called the pathological liar game. That we could prove some things using the techniques that that we developed for this rotor router machine. That it was so similar, actually, that that it was possible for one to shed light on the other. That's that's sort of what what that is about. In there, you you spoke about uh, having to prove things, and of course, that's what a large amount of mathematics boils down to is proofs. And you have a very good article up on your website that you wrote on why you feel that proofs are important. And I'm sure that we have some people here uh, who are listening who, while they enjoy mathematics, might not necessarily enjoy the proof side of it. So I was wondering if you could give them a reason as to why they should enjoy proof or why they should do more of it. Yeah, of course, this is something that comes up frequently, particularly in undergraduate classes, because, um, for example, I'm teaching Calculus 1 right now, and while we're not doing fully rigorous proofs, I, I do want to give the idea of why something is true when I tell the students about it. Um, ultimately, that's what a proof is. It's just the reason that something is true. It's a, a convincing argument. And so I, I feel like one doesn't really understand question or a technique or a, or a result until you know why it's true. Certainly, you don't have a chance of generalizing it or using it in new situations if you don't understand the, the proof of it. So I, I try to stress to my students that there's nothing scary about proof. It's just the reason that something's true. Of course, it's, the, like you said, the the whole business of mathematics is coming up with proofs, and so it, it gets very difficult and, and arcane pretty quickly. But uh, nonetheless, and especially in, in early topics, it's uh, it's important to see the the reason that the things are true that one is working with in order to, to really understand them. Now, in that in that paper that you wrote, uh, there was a line, it said, the proofs are important whether you go into mathematics, carpentry, or child-rearing. I was wondering if you had a specific example of how proofs are useful in child-rearing. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking of one had to purchase something at a store, you know, there's the kind of reasoning that goes into the worth of, of one item with regard to its price versus another choice can sometimes get pretty complicated. I mean, I, I find myself stymied sometimes in the grocery store by the, uh, it, perhaps intentionally by the, the grocery store trying to confuse me, so I'll just buy the most expensive item. But yeah, it's important to be able to reason about the consequences of, of various choices, and, and I think sometimes this can actually involve things that are not just arithmetic, that, that really do involve some, some logical deduction. And so maybe I had something like that in mind with regard to, to child rearing. <laughs> uh, before uh, you guys wondering if you have uh, any presentations or anything coming up at any of the different math conferences, if anybody listening to this wants to go see you give a talk. I'm speaking in July. Actually, all of a sudden, I don't even remember the name of the conference. Um, I, uh, I'm actually speaking this evening, if anyone lives in Columbia, South Carolina, on, uh, on some of the mathematics of Sudoku. Our, our math club here, the undergraduate math club, has an annual Sudoku 
championship. And uh, last year and this year, I've given uh, talks on, on some of the mathematics of Sudoku. It turns out it's, there's quite a bit to say. Right now, that's that's about all I've got scheduled. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to leave any feedback or just say hi, you can email me at samuel at acmescience.com and I guarantee I'll get it because that is my actual email address that everyone uses, not just you podcast listeners. Now, the music from today's episode, as it always is, is from Hard and Firm, the Pie Song, which is our theme, and then the interstitial and outro music is from sp12 you can find them over at opsounds.org strongly connected components is a creative commons licensed podcast under attribution share alike license so please go remix this share it spread it around just make sure that you let people know that we're the ones who made the original audio now thank you all for listening as always, because you, in the end, are the reason that we do what we do. And, you know, you should probably go check out our website where we have a blog post where I talk about interesting scientific or mathematical articles I find. And by me talk about, I mean, I put up a few quotes on them and I think that you would probably enjoy them. And thank you once again for listening. And I hope that you have a great week.